We are in the last uh, section of our Malachi study together. So it's in chapter 3, starting in verse 13, all the way to the end of chapter 4. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there. We're finishing it today, and that might be good news to some of you, because um, it has been a little bit intense. And the reason why is these four chapters exist to confront the hypocrisy in God's people. And whenever God comes after the hearts of his people, it can feel a little crowded, right? Um, you get confronted, and that's what this passage is. There, there's, there's some nuance of difference, right, between the other prophets in their confrontation of Israel. Here you have a real description of the way the hearts of his people bow up against God's accusations. So God says, it's you, and you got a problem, and they say, not here. You're dead wrong in your assessment, and you have a little back-and-forth play there with Israel. Just, just to remind us what we've been through, this started this whole discussion, God reminding his people, like any good father before he brings correction, of his love for his people. And they even deny that. How have you ever loved us? And that starts the whole conversation. Perhaps you remember that God calls them out on dishonoring and, and despising his name, and they say, how do we do that? And they're offering sacrifices that are crippled and broken, just trying to get through the the point of it, not offering God their best. God calls out the leaders of Israel for living a fake life, and they're using their platform to influence bad things in, in the people of God while they don't take him seriously. Perhaps you remember God calling out his people, his men, for treachery in marriage, that they were failing the covenant and just getting rid of their wives, marrying wives of foreign gods, and being brutal and harsh to their wives. Perhaps you remember God calls them out for complaining a judgmental attitude towards him, and they don't even know where that's coming from. And, uh, and then last week, we looked at where he confronts God's people for robbing him, if that's possible. And what he confronts is that he is providing. He is the one who gives all good gifts, and they're holding back from God their first and their best and their choice. And it's a worship disorder, that's what Paul talked about last week, that ultimately it all comes down to loving him less than our wealth, loving him least than our own control. And so, God, I'm just going to own this one myself, and I'm going to just kind of put you at least second, if not third or fourth in our life. And he, com he confronts all those things in Israel. And perhaps you can see just through that quick list why these last six weeks have been a little bit weighty. Um, and it, and it has been, but it, I think in a good way. But I would suggest to you that maybe today, perhaps today, is more weighty than all of them. Um, so, so let me do this. Every, every week I teach, I sit down and I consider you. Not necessarily your face, so don't, don't, don't get paranoid. I'm not, I'm not thinking about your person. I'm thinking about your type, types. And every time we get up to teach here, the room is filled with different lenses. And I don't know if you know this, but... You do not sit here unaffected by the lens you're looking at. I say something, the word says something, you see it through a lens and then you do whatever you do with that. There are people in the room today who have theological triggers and they, they have things, hot buttons, things they really, really care about. And every passage to them is a way to say that thing. doesn't matter what the text is actually saying. If you don't ring that bell, I, I, am, I got a problem. And, and the conclusion is I'm going to judge you, like you're avoiding things. Theological triggers. Some people have theological offenses. God's word's pretty clear, sometimes too painfully clear, and sometimes we don't like what it says. So I'm just offended by what the Bible says, and so um, we don't want to regard it. Some of us are theologically confused. You don't know, and you don't know that you don't know. 
and things come at you, and especially in a 35-minute sermon, and you're just kind of, oh, wow, didn't see that, don't know that, don't know, where, don't know where to go get my hope in that, and so you're just confused, and some of you are theologically comatose. You're asleep. You're asleep. You're, you're, just, you're just glad that you can say Jesus, and the rest of this stuff is for the people who take it seriously. And let's just say this about all of us. Every person sitting in every seat in this room is a sinner. So I'm telling you what that does. It makes things hard to see. Clarity is our issue, and sin creates the cloud. You understand? So there's lots of things you can't hear, you won't hear, you want to hear because of a lens. And then there's the trap that we're in between the flesh, you know, that's contrary to things of the Spirit, and we don't listen well. So with that in mind, it's not really reasonable just to come to a text and say, okay, figure it out. We need the Holy Spirit intervention, correct? Right? Amen? So let's do this. Before we even start picking this thing apart, let's ask the Holy Spirit to remove our lenses and let us see what God has to say. Let's pray together. Father, we confess our limitations. We confess our preferences. We confess our prejudices. We confess the things that bring us comfort that aren't anything to do with what you have to say to us. And we confess our sin that clouds the whole story anyway. So God, we, we ask for you today to teach us that each person in the room would hear from you this text and wrestle with its meaning to their heart. God, you're good and you're always good. You're faithful. Your word never goes out and doesn't do a work. So I pray you do your work in all of us today. And and we pray it in Christ's name, amen. Uh, obviously, I don't have to tell you that we live in a world of contrasts, right? Um, so much division in our world, right and wrong, left, right, just whatever it is, it seems like that's the only thing you hear and everything that you hear. It's nothing new, to be honest with you, but it, it is intense. We just have to admit it. it. It seems to be burning a little brighter. I, I bring that up simply because this passage lays out in contrast. So if you like that kind of, them and us kind of thing, well, then you're going to love this next little section of scriptures. The scriptures in total, and perhaps you know this, so I'll just say it because we'll assume it, uh, the scriptures claim that it's the very word of God. God breathed. In other words, it has authority. You know what authority means, right? Not one of the voices, the voice. It becomes exclusive when it becomes God's word, right? And it just dictates all of the words. And it's true for everybody everywhere, regardless of what everybody everywhere think about it. It's a greater than truth. And so the scriptures in total reveals the contrast between God's truth and the lies. Everywhere it sees it. Here's what, here's what God thinks. Here's what God said. Here's what God has provided. And every other option, every other crazy way humanity has tried to solve the problem or sort out the issues, and it just kind of puts it out there, and you're kind of faced to, to look at them both or, or to wrestle with them both. And that's what it presents from the beginning to the end. Truth, lies, right, wrong, sin, righteousness, love, hate. And you could just kind of make those contrasts. And I'll tell you, that's why people struggle with it. Because it blows up your feelings as a source of truth. Most people use some version of compass to decide what is true. And they use their feelings to navigate what that is. And that's why you can look at the world and go, man, there's a 15 billion people on the planet, and there's 15 billion truths. That's just not true. So when God says it, and God's the authority, it blows up our feelings as the standard, and God is greater, his word is greater than our feelings, and God's judgment is more right than accurate than your own. 
He's more accurate than how you assess your own problems or how you assess the world's problems or how you assess what the church should be doing, whatever. He's more accurate. And so we have to be extremely dependent on him. Today, this passage I want to show you contrasts, uh, again, this wonderful juxtaposition between God's way, God's word, God's authority, and everybody else. And it's going to lay out like that. So let me show you. It starts with two different voices. Let's, it, the voices are laid out pretty simple. The voice against God and the voice for God. Here's the first voice, voice in verse 13 through 15. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord, but you say, you say, Israel, how have we spoken against you? God says, you have said, it's vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Israel makes this accusation against God that following God doesn't pay. And this is not just like this personal feeling. You know, the word said in verse, uh, in verse uh, what is it, verse 14, you have said, the, the tense of that verb is not inclined to think just like you murmuring to yourself. It's actually used of talking to others. So think about this. The people who are accusing God are kind of sharing the accusation against God. Like, God, you're dropping the ball. And it doesn't pay to worship you. It doesn't pay to serve you. Evildoers get away with murder. Figuratively, maybe even literally. They're blessed, in fact. The evil prospers. And it seems as if God does nothing to stop it. That's the accusation. And if you're honest, if you're honest, sometimes it can feel that way, can't it? I dare you, don't, it's probably not good for your heart, but I did it for you then. Um, this morning I Googled, corruption goes unchecked. Page after page after page after page after page of governmental, local authorities all being charged with corruption. And not just in America, worldwide, everywhere, corruption. Crime and sin doesn't know anything about a border. And nobody, just let's just limit, the, let's say our borders were these walls. Not a single person in here really sees or is transparent about our own issues. So there's all sorts of corruption we carry around, like ways in which we cope and manage and defend ourselves. And that's, that's also things we manage or concern ourselves with. So at some point, I guess the accusation can seem legit, right? Evil seems to be okay. I mean, do okay. Some places it seems to profit. Corruption seems to go undisciplined. And mankind can stand in the street shaking its fist at the heavens and no lightning bolt. You can see that. And, and, and if you know the difference between what God says is right and wrong, maybe you think that from time to time that because of this injustice or seeming get away with murder, it's pointless to serve God. Like, God, why am, I, why am I disciplining myself? Why am I following you? Why am I confessing you like crazy? And people who have no regard whatsoever for absolutes are you, just kind of marry along their way. Have a wonderful life, it, it appears. And maybe the arrogant seem to us as blessed and evildoers seem to win, but I want you to hear this. Maybe, maybe this is the only thing you need to hear today. Do not confuse God's patience with sinners with him being tolerant of sin. There's a big difference. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter two, do you suppose, O man, that you will escape the judgment of God? 
Or do you presume upon the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. (laughs) In other words, get this, God's slowness in dealing with our sin is a gift from God to give you room to turn from your sin. To see it any other way is not seeing it accurately. But do not assume that because God doesn't immediately crush the rebellious, and he could, that he doesn't and ultimately won't. That's the reality of the scriptures. That's the, that's the first voice. People who just kind of get away with murder, they complain against God, they do what they want. And they, look at the second voice, verse uh, 16 and 17. And then this other group. Those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And the book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts in that day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who who serves him. God says in this passage clearly that somebody is going to belong to him and somebody is going to be his treasured possession. And if you see the qualifiers here, it lays out pretty clearly those who fear the Lord, those who encourage other people to fear the Lord, and those who esteem his name. That's just code for worship. And I love this. He says there's a book of remembrance. It's really important. God knows who these people are. And just so to be clear, God does not have a memory problem. Like, I got to write them down. Like, Joe and Gilbert, I got to remember that guy. He doesn't have a memory problem. This is written for you and for your sake. God wants you to know he knows and he wants you to know that he knows. He knows who fear him. He keeps record of that for our sake. Let me ask you this question. What strikes me in this passage over and over again is the phrase, those who fear the Lord. Do you think you know what that means? Because that seems to be one phrase that would be the qualifier for, for this particular person who will be his special treasured possession. Do you think you know what it means? Some, some people can't see past like the pragmatics of their story. You know, it sounds like a bad phrase. To fear someone is to cower because they're so unpredictable and so harsh. I, I think of someone who might have an alcoholic, alcoholic father who you never know what you're going to get. You never know when they're going to fly off the handle or for those reasons. That is not the fear of God. It's not fear of the Lord because he's crazy, brutal, or unpredictable. It's fear because he's holy and he's otherly, and we're not. It is reverence. It is a recognition that you're made of dust, and he always was and always will be. He's all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good and righteous, and he's holy. There's none like him, no, not one. It's the recognition of the distance that exists between you and that God. That's what it is to fear the Lord. And even then, even if I get done saying that, we kind of walk away and I guess that's how I'll think. But let me put some practical like, work to this so you know then like, what is the outcome of this or what does it look like to fear the Lord. Let me suggest to you it's a submissive heart to the authority that God alone has. And it shows by your submission to this book. This is the word that he's given us. 
This is a word that he's revealed to us, and it's our submission to everything that he says. Like the definition of right and wrong, the way of salvation being exclusively in Jesus, or that the work of Jesus in the life of his kids produces a holiness over time that looks like him. That is what the scriptures tell us. And I just gotta say it, but you cannot define things by your truth or the culture's truth. The fear of the Lord means he defines the terms and you submit to that, even where it's massively uncomfortable. It seems like it would be worth saying, like in our culture, man, that is so up for grabs. Everything, everything, everything is just up in the wind. Like you get to be your own source of truth and understanding. That is just not true. Otherwise, it's not truth. Let me give you something else to consider when it comes to the fear of the Lord. To fear the Lord means living the lifestyle of the repentant. In other words, repentance is an event, even though you might have experienced it that way. Like most of us, when we think about repentance, think about that moment in time where I realized I was wrong and I realized I was a sinner and I walked an aisle, signed a card, raised my hand, and there was this wonderful like moment of transformation. I was not happy, I was discouraged, and there was joy. And that's a wonderful moment and it's truly a part of repentance. But repentance isn't an event. I I call it um, a God-shaped personality. In, In other words... To to be a repentant heart means it's a sensitive soul that's suspicious of your motives and suspicious of your intentions, who questions your version of righteousness. Now that changes the thing, right? If everybody in this room carried with them the suspicion of your own heart all the time, there'd be no room to judge. Like, God, did I say it too wrong? Was I too harsh? Was I insensitive? Did I not think? Am I not listening? God, not, not to cripple you, but just a real sensitive heart that says, God, I want to be like you, and I know that wrapped up in this, this transformed life is this body of flesh that wars with the things of the Spirit, and I'll never by my own flesh desire what you desire, so I'm going to walk into life going, I could, it's probably me. It's got to be me. The reason why they're angry is because I didn't care or I didn't love. I was thinking about this before the 8 o'clock service, so I'm going to give it to you. What kind of church do you want to be a part of? And I'm not talking about Big C. I'm talking about Gilbert. What kind of church do you want to belong to? Do you want to be a part of a church that is known for repentance or judgment? Like if people walked in here and they go, man, those people are so soft, like so soft and so sensitive to their own inclinations and their own, you know, failures. They're, they're just confessing their sin, loving people. You know, there's a drastic different experience in a church that's thinking about how God is transforming them as opposed to someone going, I don't think they're quite accurate about that. I don't think they quite do that right. I don't think that's a good intention. Like, you know, you don't know nothing. I don't know nothing. I'm asked all the time, all the time, there'll be some person of note. Do you think he's a believer? How do I know that? I'm going to take people's word for it. Like, if they say they're not, you're not. If they say they are, I'm going to go, well, if he is, 
Because I don't know God's going to work in his life to transform. I know the rules of what transformation looks like. But I'm not, to me, like going, I think you aren't. I can offer suggestions. Like it's not a problem to look in the mirror of God's holiness unless you find nothing there. But I, who am I? Some people, some people really want to be the church of judgment, not the church of repentance. So whatever it is, there you go. <laughs> but you know what the repentant heart does? Because you know this word. We taught you so much. Repentance is leaving your sin. To be a brokenhearted person means you're always quick to leave it. There's always, always retreat tracks in every Christian's life. I'm out of there. Let me give you another qualifier um, for repentance. Repentance isn't a word for perfection. It's a word for action. In other words, repentance has to be continual. It is exactly what fighting sin looks like. When the Apostle Paul says, I box in such a way, or I run in such a way, I am the worst of all sinners. This is like uh, our experience. I don't ever wake up to fail. I don't ever wake up to sin. But because of this tension between the God-authored, spirit-changed soul of my heart and the flesh that wars with those things, guess what happens to me? A lot. Sin. I get angry. I lust. I'm lazy. I'm short-tempered. You understand? So guess what I do a lot? I'm sorry. I see it. I don't want it. I want to be a different man. And that's what it looks like. It's falling, leaving, growing. Falling, leaving, growing. That's, that is the life of a Christian before God totally transforms the flesh. You know that, right? Come on, somebody. Amen. Yeah. Let me give you another qualifier. Our repentance is never complete. God, because God in our life doesn't expose all of our sins all at once. Say amen to that. Right? Aren't you glad that he doesn't bring you to him and say, there it is, boom, there's 80 years of failure. It doesn't happen that way. Although we kind of all in our confusion think it happens that way. When I got saved, I, I seriously thought this, God, there's only a few adjustments we got to make here. <laughs> and then I got married. And you know, right? You know. Every man in here goes, yeah, they don't bring that up. You know how that works. Every stage of your life exposes more and more of the idols in your life, and you confess them when God reveals them to the stages of your life. To the teenager in high school, it's a series of these things. To the college student, to the married, to the unmarried, to the businessman, to the poor man, to the rich man to the sick man and the healthy man. Every one of those particular stories reveals all sorts of idols, and when God reveals them, we go, God, it is what it is, and I turn from it. You do it over and over again. And that's the point of fearing the Lord and our repentance. Whenever, however, God reveals our sin, we do what with it? We turn from it again and again and again. Come on, right? Okay. God is doing that work in us. Let me show you this. I want you to notice two distinctions. Verse 18. This one lays out perfectly. You'll see it. Then one 
once more, you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the ones who serve God and the one who do not serve God. Righteous and wicked, it lays out perfectly. And they're both revealed by their worship. One serves God and the other one serves himself, which um, is always true. In 1979, just before I got saved, uh, Bob Dylan came out, he supposedly got saved and came out with an album. And on that album, there was a song called Gotta Serve Somebody. And he has this just line, it's either going to be God or anything else. And the code for anything else is you. No matter what it is out there, you're either serving God or you're serving whatever makes you happy, which also ultimately is serving you, All right? So let me ask you a question today. You, you are obviously here for a reason this Sunday. Are you certain you worship God? Are you certain you worship the God of the Bible? Because I don't have to tell you, but it's massively trendy to self-create a God that uh, you like and prefer. One that doesn't cramp your style too much, one that accepts your perspectives and your understandings of things, one that likes your lifestyle, one that is okay with how you neglect other people. You, lots of people create a God that just doesn't, doesn't bring conviction. So let me ask you, who do you worship today? I'll give you a test. When God's word says something, who do you adjust? Yourself or God? That's a good test. And what's absolutely 2020 is to morph this thing into something that just comforts me in my sin and not confronts a heart that needs a savior. You know, you've heard it before. It's like we hear it all the time. My God would never, if God is a God of love, all that stuff, not to diminish those questions, but they're kind of universal questions. And I would answer, well, that's probably true. Your God wouldn't. Your God wouldn't have a problem with those things. But that doesn't mean your God is God. When God defines a husband's responsibility, it's not blurry. When it describes the differences between men and women, it's not blurry. When the scriptures talk about sexuality and marriage, it's not blurry. You might not like it, but it's not blurry. When the Bible talks about wealth and how you should not care for wealth and you should meet other people's needs and have your treasures in the kingdom of heaven, it's not blurry. When God says those things about business and how you should care for those who have the least, it's not blurry. So what do you do with that stuff? You can adjust it, right? A lot do that. Because of your opinion, your experience, or your preference, you either correct the truth or reject it outright. What else can you do? According to what God says here, the ones he calls his own, the ones he says are his treasured possessions are the ones who serve him, not themselves. And service is all about worship and worship is all dependent on coming to grips that there's only one God and you are not him. Make sense? Okay. I want you to notice that there's two outcomes. Chapter four, verse one. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. 
My assumption that when Malachi started this, this uh, kind of prophecy, he's, he's the one who said this is a burden. I'm certain all the things he said were not challenging, but I'll bet you this one was the heaviest. Verse 1, chapter 4. And this truly is God responding to the accusation that the wicked get away with everything and they're blessed. And all you got to do is read verse 1 and go, oh, oh, no, they don't. No, they don't. Now, this is a part of the sermon where you want to get out of here. And I've actually seen people stand up and leave because they don't like what they hear. So now you can't leave. So now you're messed up. Even if you got to go to the bathroom, you got to hold it because people will think you're leaving. <laughs> I've heard people say this. I didn't come here to get judged. I came here to be encouraged. Can I just tell you that's the point of verse 1? Maybe not in the most obvious way, but that's the point of verse 1. Let me try to explain. Um, You tell me. Is it good news to hear what awaits you if you reject grace, if you reject grace or not? Is that good news? If I illustrated it with cancer, you would go, oh, I kind of get that. So um, no one wants to hear that they have cancer or that if left untreated, you're going to die. That's horrible. That's horrible. And some people in this room have faced it or had loved ones who've faced that. But that worst possible outcome is the driving force behind pursuing a remedy of any kind. What if a doctor said, no, that's just, those are hard words. I just don't want to say hard words. And a person goes off merrily thinking everything's fine only to have something consuming them from the inside out and they are going to die. Is it good news to hear that there's a way out or there's a remedy or not? This is meant to be encouraging. In other words, certain judgment is the outcome for those who reject the God of the scriptures. And I have to say this, it's profound, but, and this is the giant kind of conclusion, but you can turn, that's that word repentance, You can turn today and you can turn to Jesus alone and find grace and mercy. And this is where that cancer illustration really breaks down. Because unlike cancer, turning to God's remedy is absolute healing and it's guaranteed. It's a guaranteed life. Guaranteed joy. Guaranteed forgiveness and restoration and relationship for all eternity. Guaranteed if you turn from your sin and you turn to Jesus alone. But, but, and I'm going to say this because it's in the text. If you don't, look at me. The holy judgment of God will consume you. That's what it says. And that also is guaranteed. The text says things like burning like an oven, a blaze that destroys every blasphemy, neither root nor branch, everything consumed, everything wasted, consumed by the holiness of God. Of all the words that God would lay down here for us, burning like an oven, you know why ovens exist? One reason, to make fire hotter. This is utter torment. That's exactly what's meant here in this first one. I know you don't love this stuff, but it's true. Malachi is not the only one who made that point of eternal torment. Jesus did when talking about the persecution that the church was going to feel. He said, don't worry about the people who will just destroy the flesh, the body. And then he says in Matthew 10, fear him who destroys both body and soul in hell forever. Not a lot, annihilation. 
eternal torment. Matthew 13, God will gather all the lawbreakers and throw them into a fiery furnace where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth forever. Matthew 25, Jesus on that day will separate the people who worship him from the people who don't. And to those who don't worship him, he'll say, depart from me, you cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. And they will go into eternal punishment and the righteous into life. The Apostle Paul said this, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. In Revelation 20, John says, if anyone's name is not found in the book of remembrance or the written book of life, he is thrown into the eternal lake of fire. And there's many, 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 many more. Do you get what I'm saying here? It isn't God or some kind of bliss without God. It's God alone through Christ alone or it's judgment because you've sinned against the holiness of God. There isn't anything else. And I, it would be malpractice of me to give you some kind of hope if you rejected Jesus. If it feels tense and it feels weighty to you, it should And I am not, please hear me, I'm not telling you things out of judgment. I will tell you, I got my own issues. That if God should pull back his righteous covering called Jesus for my life, I am destroyed forever in eternal torment. But I have a covering. I have the imputed righteousness of Christ that stands between me and the holy assessment of God and my failure. I'm not telling you things to be harsh My heart is broken over those of you who will choose to face God's holiness alone. Like you're just gonna reject Jesus and stand there before his assessment and you're just gonna be undone. And I'm massively concerned about those of you who are hearing me right now who still have an opportunity in your life because God's patience is meant to lead you to to repentance, right? His, His kindness brings us there. I'm massively concerned that you right now have stood at a distance from God, waiting and waiting, thinking it doesn't matter and God won't judge and he's gonna let the evildoer get away. He will not. And you can hear these words and you can turn from your sin and turn to Jesus. Listen to what, how he describes the other outcome. Verse two. For, for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall There's been a lot of discussion about the interpretation of sons of righteousness. Some would say it's really the conclusion, like righteousness, the life of righteousness that God produces in his people. And some would say, no, it's actually referring to Jesus, the son, S-O-N, of righteousness, kind of that idea. Well, let me just tell you, you don't have one without the others, so it's got to be both. It always has to be both. The son of righteousness, let's just say the righteousness of God in, to us from Christ that we don't earn creates a righteousness in us, right? We understand that. The righteous one for us produces that in us. It's interesting to note, you have, you have in one passage to some an oven and to others a son. Can I just tell you both an oven and a son are all consuming? But an oven consumes the sinner, but the sun consumes us in. In Christ, God in his goodness will consume the sin. Like Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far he'll remove your transgressions from you. He'll remember it no more. All of it consumed in his great love. Amen? 
And the outcome is joy. Back in the 70s and 80s, I worked in a dairy farm and a, a horse ranch and, uh, and it was Illinois, so it was really cold. And so we would, we would have them barmed up a lot. But when you let them out into the pasture, you get this picture, right? Calves or cows leaping out in, in the pasture. And I'm not a cow, um, so, but I'm going to make some assumptions about what they're feeling at the moment. They, you know, a cow's expression in its leaping is all about freedom. Pinned in, hemmed in to sunlight and green grass. You understand? To food and nourishment. And that's what's happening here for God's people. Free from judgment, free from sin, free from insecurity, free from whatever is between you and him. When the son of righteousness gives you his righteousness and frees you from yourself, joy. Ridiculous joy. Not circumstantial, ridiculous joy. One quick reference here, one more outcome for those who fear the Lord. When injustice is referred to in the scriptures often, it is talking about how the righteous suffer at the hand of the wicked. And I suppose that's part of the charge here. You know, like, why does it, why does it pay? It doesn't pay because the wicked get away with murder and I'm the one that they're taking advantage of. And, and God just makes it clear in verse three, um, and you shall tread down the wicked and for they will be ashes under your soles of your feet and on the day of the Lord when I act, says the Lord. It's the same thing that Paul says in 2 Thessalonians. God considers it just to repay the affliction uh, uh, with affliction those who afflicted you. God keeps good notes and he will always exact justice. So whatever version of angst you have, he's, he's clear on this. Let, let me give you just the last concluding thoughts here. This is the so what. And that is that Malachi leaves us with two confessions. One is to submit to the word of God, and the other is to rest in the grace of God. Verse four, remember the law of the servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded him at Horb for all Israel. Submit to the truth. Submit to his word. Rest in the word. Rest in the life-giving word. Verse five, it talks about Elijah. Behold, I send you Elijah, the prophet, where the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children, the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Uh, There's a few different takes on who Elijah is here. Some would say, you know, Revelation 11, that Elijah represents one of the witnesses when it comes to judgment. I personally believe that he's best understood as the one whom was pointing to Jesus, John the Baptist. In Luke chapter 1, the angel of the Lord came to Zechariah and said, you're going to have a son. We know him as John the Baptist. He's the forerunner to Jesus. And... uh, And if you read that kind of prophecy, it's almost word for word what Malachi says. Watch this. And he will turn me, the children of Israel, to to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a, a people prepared. Sounds almost exactly like it. And you know this, I hope you know this, that John's whole job was to point to the the grace of God in the person of Jesus. There he is. There he is. Matthew 3, repent for the kingdom of heaven is hand. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I am, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John 1, the next day when John saw Jesus walking towards him, he looks at him and points and says, behold the Lamb of God who what? Takes away the sin of the world. John's entire job was to point to grace. There he is. There he is. 
We understand this and we confess this. That Jesus alone saves. Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else. John 14, no other way to get to the Father but through him, right? So can I ask you a question as we leave today? What did you hear? If you were to boil it all down, what did you hear? Did you hear that hell awaits the sinner? Or did you hear that sinners can be saved by grace? That says all you need to know about what lens you're listening through. If God has softened your heart to see your sin, to actually have him expose you as one who doesn't measure up to the holy standard of God, the next thought in your mind would be help. And I'm telling you the name of the help. It's Jesus. You come to him unperfected and ragged and destroyed and you say, this is what I am and he will cover your sin with his righteousness and you will be free. Free from the judgment, free from the insecurity and be set free to be like Christ. Amen? Let's pray together. God, I pray for us today as we hear what are sober words, certainly, but are really life words, to, to know that um, how it works in your world and how you feel about sin, so much so that you gave the life of your own son to die in our, in our place. God, for those of us who confess that, we want to say thank you. And my heart goes out to those in this room who might not confess it that maybe they hear this, these sobering words as words of life and they would receive Christ and find salvation. That's our prayer. Amen.